Henry Kissinger died at the age of 100 on November 29, 2023. His death sparked strong reactions from both supporters and critics, an intensity always present, even in life. Kissinger served as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State from 1969 to 1977. In those eight years, he left an indelible mark on U.S. foreign policy and the international community as a whole. He has been praised as America's greatest statesman for his diplomacy with communist countries like the Soviet Union and China amidst the Cold War, but also reviled as its bloodiest war criminal for his connections to violence in the Vietnam War, Chile, Bangladesh, Cyprus, and East Timor. So, the question is, what legacy does Henry Kissinger leave behind? To help us make sense of and answer that question, I talked to Dr. Salim Yacoub. Yes, my name is Salim Yacoub, and I teach history here at UCSB. Well, thank you again for coming in. We're really excited to have you here today. Um, for many people, including myself, Kissinger is really tied to President Richard Nixon and Southeast Asia in the late 60s to 70s, and we'll get to that later, but... um. In your opinion, where should we start in his life to understand who he is and what made him who he is? Well, if you want to take a bit of time to study him fully, you would probably want to begin with his childhood and his upbringing. He was born in Germany. He was a German Jew um, who fled with his family to the United States in the late 1930s when he was 15 years old to escape Nazi persecution. And he uh, interestingly returned to Germany a few years later as a young army officer. And the fact that he was from Germany, knew the language, meant that he was very useful to the occupying US forces in defeated Germany when it came to administering those portions of uh, Germany where Kissinger was operating. So he had this, from a, from a very early age, when he was in his early 20s, he was already taking on some fairly important leadership roles or and analytical roles when it came to assessing the political situation in Germany in the immediate aftermath of the war. So it's, yeah, he, it's a very interesting biography. You know, right from the beginning, he's in the thick of uh, American decision-making regarding uh, war and peace. In 1969, President Richard Nixon appointed Henry Kissinger as National Security Advisor. Then, while keeping him in that position, he, in 1973, picked Kissinger to be Secretary of State. I asked Dr. Yacoub about the significance of Kissinger being able to operate in these dual roles. It meant that he had immediate access to the president. That was a continuation of his former role because as national security advisor, he worked in the White House and, and he had an office just down the hall from the president. And so he, he met with Nixon every day and was part of his part of Nixon's very um, you know small circle of advisors when it came to foreign policy and often foreign policy was decided just by the two of them alone. So he, that continued um, into the period when Kissinger was Secretary of State, but he now, as Secretary of State, had control over the bureaucracy of the largest agency or department of the U.S. government concerned with foreign relations. So, you know, all of the ambassadors and other diplomats who were part of the foreign service 
answer directly to Kissinger in a way that hadn't been true before. And Kissinger, of course, was the face of American foreign policy in a way that hadn't been true prior to his appointment as Secretary of State. So it just magnified his role in all kinds of ways. It gave him an ability to manage foreign policy on so many different dimensions in a way that wasn't true when he was just National Security Advisor. The conversation then turned to Kissinger's policymaking. First off, he's lauded for his role in easing tensions with the Soviet Union and China. I asked Dr. Yakub about how Kissinger approached Cold War strategy using something called détente. So détente is a French word that means relaxation of tensions. And the idea was that the United States should try to normalize its relations with its communist adversaries, not be in a state of perpetual hostility with them, because that was very dangerous, you know, especially with the Soviet Union uh, having a, a nuclear arsenal that was comparable to that of the United States. Uh, communist China had nuclear weapons as well, but uh, on a much smaller scale. So the idea was, look, it's, it's yes, we're, we're in a strong and long-standing rivalry with these powers, but we need to find some way to deal with them that doesn't perpetually threaten to break out into global war. So we need to find areas where we can cooperate. And so this was something that the U.S. government had been generally aiming toward throughout the 1960s. You see moves toward detente throughout that decade, especially in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which brought the world very close to the brink of nuclear war and sort of put a scare into everybody, you know, including members you know, of the governments of the United States and the Soviet Union. So you do see, you do see moves toward detente in the 1960s, although it's complicated by the fact that the United States is also escalating the Vietnam War. So it's this crazy situation where there's uh, you know increased violence on the periphery of the Cold War struggle, but uh, continuing efforts to stabilize the situation when it comes to the core dispute between the United States and the Soviet Union. When Nixon and Kissinger come into office then, it's pretty much expected that they would continue the efforts that the previous administration of Lyndon Johnson had made to try to normalize relations, to try to move more squarely into the era of detente. So, so that was not anything all that unusual or revolutionary. What was different was that because they were, because this was a Republican administration, it wasn't as vulnerable to red baiting in the same way that Democratic administrations uh, had been. So the Republican, uh, Republican-led governments could move towards closer and more productive relations with communist countries without having to worry so much about being accused of being soft on communism. Uh, you may have heard the expression, you know, only Nixon could go to China. The, because, yeah, if a Democrat had tried to do that, he would immediately have been pilloried as soft on communism, whereas Nixon had you know, impeccable anti-communist credentials, so he could make the move towards normalizing relations with China and not be attacked as soft on communism. So that, that same general principle applied when it came to the Soviet Union as well. <clears throat> now, there were so, so the general move towards um, detente involved reaching arms control agreements with the Soviet Union. And for the most part, these were seen as 
necessary and positive accomplishments. Now, when you look more closely at Kissinger's and Nixon's handling of the um, negotiations with the Soviet Union over nuclear weapons, you can see areas where they fell short. And in particular, the, the professional arms control negotiators, uh, you know, people who were part of the State Department, part of the diplomatic corps, part of the more permanent U.S. foreign policy-making bureaucracy, they often felt that um, Nixon and Kissinger, and especially Kissinger, cut some corners and they, you know, they rushed to reach agreements and announce them with great fanfare before all of the necessary issues had been resolved. And in one issue in particular was the so-called MERV issue. Those are multiple independently targeted re-entry vehicles, M-I-R-V. And basically what that means is um, every, not every, but many of the nuclear rockets that could be shot at the Soviet Union contain not just one warhead, but rather multiple warheads that each of them could be targeted uh, to an, a, a different place, right? So you shoot one rocket and it splits off into several independently targeted uh, warheads and, you know, you it, it achieves a much wider um, scale of destruction. So it's a very dangerous and destabilizing uh, kind of nuclear technology. And there was a very strong push within the bureaucracy of the uh, U.S. foreign policy establishment, or you know, within the you know, among the professional negotiators, the people who were working under Kissinger at his direction, to get this issue resolved. And there, you know, people were saying, "Look, you know, Henry, we need to let's not rush to make an agreement just yet. Let's try to get some um, understanding on MIRVs so that can be included in the agreement." Kissinger was too eager to announce an agreement during the 1972 election year for the benefit of his uh, boss, Richard Nixon. Um, and so he just uh, pushed through the agreement without having the MERV issue resolved. And so both sides continued to build MERVs and that became you know, a, a, an increasingly destabilizing element of the, of the nuclear uh, standoff. So those are the kinds of critiques that you sometimes see where, you know, Kissinger, because he was so committed to this razzle-dazzle um, diplomacy, you know, wanted to make headlines and have very, um, you know, dramatic results that could be announced to the nation, uh, neglected these seemingly arcane, but actually very dangerous details. And so th th that sort of criticism is something you hear, um, not just on on nuclear weapons, but on other aspects of U.S. foreign policy. Kissinger's death in November was met with condolences from the Chinese government and state media. President Xi Jinping sent condolences to President Joe Biden, in which he called Kissinger, quote, a world-renowned strategist and a good old friend of the Chinese people, end quote. Kissinger visited China in July of this year, one of about 100 visits since his first over 50 years ago. Dr. Yacoub then explained the significance of that 1971 secret trip to Beijing. Sure. Yeah. So this is one of the one of those cases where Kissinger became very strongly associated, very closely associated with a policy that was really um, Nixon's uh, baby. I mean, Nixon, as early as 1967, in an article he wrote for the journal Foreign Affairs, 
had talked about the necessity of reaching some kind of understanding with communist China. And this was at a time when the two countries were not speaking to each other at all. And there was just no way that the Johnson administration could move towards rapprochement with China, partly because it was preoccupied with Vietnam and partly also because it would have to worry about being red baited. But Nixon, as early as 1967, was saying, listen, we need to, to reach some kind of an understanding. And so it was always Nixon's initiative that the United States move dramatically towards normalizing relations with China. And Kissinger actually was somewhat skeptical of that approach in the early years of the Nixon administration. But once it became clear that Nixon was very determined to do this, Kissinger took it on as a project that he would pursue on behalf of the president. So it really was Nixon's initiative. Nonetheless, Kissinger was the figure who, on the ground level, brought it about. And as you, you know, it starts out with these secret meetings with Chinese officials in Poland in 1969 and 1970. And then in 1971, as you said, he uh, secretly visits China. Kissinger takes a trip to, to I think it was to uh, South Asia, to Pakistan, and he sort of disappears for a couple of days. He's, the, the cover story is that he was feeling sick, and so he just needed to stay in his hotel room until he felt better. What he was actually doing was secretly flying to China, where he met with um, Zhou Enlai, the um, uh, uh, Chinese uh, prime minister, and basically laid the ground for improved relations between the two countries and for a visit by Nixon to China in the following year, 1972. Um, also, normalizing relations with China would make it easier, Nixon and Kissinger hoped, to exit the Vietnam War in a graceful or relatively graceful way, because China was providing lots of military and other support to North Vietnam. Though Kissinger's greatest controversy is perhaps tied to the Vietnam War, I asked about his role that would earn him the Nobel Peace Prize, that is, ending it. Both he and Lei Duc Tha were awarded the prize for negotiating the 1973 Paris Peace Accords. So the basic idea was to reach some kind of an agreement with the North that would allow the South Vietnamese government to remain in place at least for some period of time after the Americans withdrew. And in, this was actually a rather cynical strategy, sometimes referred to as the decent interval strategy. And so their basic method of doing this was to build in some safeguards, you know, a, uh, a buffer zone between the North and the South, um, some agreements on what kinds of troops could be permitted, you know, in certain areas, that sort of pick, working around the edges of the issue in a way that would hopefully slow down the North Vietnamese advance. And you, you do see a very interesting drama right at the end of that negotiation. This We're talking the basically the fall of 1972, uh, which interestingly is co coinciding with the presidential election, which Nixon wins in, a, in an overwhelming way, um, where the South Vietnamese government realizes how perilous its situation is. And it starts putting all kinds of obstacles in the way of an agreement between the United States and North Vietnam in order to, you know, basically to, to block an agreement, to force the United States to remain um, 
in South Vietnam. And you, you eventually get this kind of uh, strange eruption of violence in December of 1972, um, right around the Christmas season. So it becomes known as the Christmas bombing. So this is after Nixon has won re-election in an overwhelming way. But the negotiations over Vietnam are, are ongoing. And Nixon, in this effort that is designed both to show the North Vietnamese that he means business, but also to reassure the South Vietnamese government that um, he's not going to abandon them, he conducts this very um, massive bombing campaign against North Vietnam uh, for over the space of oh, a couple of weeks, maybe 12 days. Um, and then, you know, after sending that message in his view, he brings the campaign to an end and uh, reaches an agreement with with um, with the North Vietnamese that, you know, essentially it allows the South Vietnamese to, government to remain in place you know, so that the previous North Vietnamese demand had been that the South Vietnamese government should be dismantled at the point of the agreement. So with the concession that the Americans got was, no, the South Vietnamese government stays in place and at least is given an opportunity to um, try to survive. But everybody understands that once the Americans have actually pulled their troops out, that the South Vietnamese regime is not going to last long. And indeed, in the spring of 1975, so just a couple, a little more than two years after the American troops withdraw from South Vietnam, uh, North Vietnam overruns the South and extinguishes the South Vietnamese regime. Dr. Yacoub mentioned the 1972 Hanoi Christmas bombings, whose significance in ending the war have been debated. North Vietnam said the bombings had no influence on the peace talks, while an aide to Kissinger said, quote, we bombed the North Vietnamese into accepting our concessions, end quote, a remark which Dr. Yacoub explains was sardonic and self-critical sort of snarky way saying, yeah, you know, we bombed the North Vietnamese into accepting our concessions. In other words, that you know, the you know, the United States was already making these major concessions to the North Vietnamese. Um, and so it was a, it was a fundamental uh, with a defeat, you might say, uh, for the, 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 for the United States, Nonetheless, just to get to the point where you're actually signing on the dotted line, you had to make a show of force. Um, you know, historians have disagreed over the role that the Christmas bombs played in the end game of the negotiations. Some argue that it was basically unnecessary and therefore a kind of horrific um, and arguably criminal display of violence, or not just display, but actual infliction of violence, you know, killing thousands of Vietnamese, mostly civilians, um, for for no good reason. Uh, others say, well, it, you know, it, it may have been morally uh, uh, compromised and distasteful, but it did actually finally nudge the parties uh, to the negotiating table. Because if you look at what actually happens in the spring in summer of 1975, you see a succession of setbacks for the United States. You've got the government of you know, the South Vietnamese government is taken over, is you know is extinguished, and uh, South Vietnam is overrun by the North. Uh, Laos goes communist right around that same time. The the, the you know, Laotian communist insurgency uh, prevails. 
And uh, more ominously, Cambodia also is taken over in a by a communist insurgency, the uh, the Khmer Rouge. And of course, in the uh, next five years or so after that, the Khmer Rouge commit a um, you know a series of just really heinous um, acts of genocide that um, you know result in the deaths of probably a couple million people. About Cambodia, this is also you know another point where Kissinger may be has drawn the most condemnation, you know, mm-hmm. with um, Operation Menu, the, mm-hmm. the secret covert bombing campaign against Cambodia, which, you know, some people say led to the rise of the Khmer Rouge. Um, what do records say about Kissinger's involvement in this covert bombing campaign? Okay, so this is a secret effort to defeat, or at least contain the North Vietnamese inside Cambodia. So in the in 1969, in 1970, there was a concern that the North Vietnamese were using Cambodian territory to infiltrate troops and supplies into South Vietnam to fight against the South Vietnamese government and the United States. In other words, there were these North Vietnamese sanctuaries in Cambodia that uh, were posing a serious problem for the whole U.S. effort to maintain the South Vietnamese government. So the idea was, okay, we will um, take military action against those North Vietnamese sanctuaries. And because we're telling the American public that we're winding down the Vietnam War, this is not something we want to um, own up to. So this is done in secret. The hope is, okay, we'll We'll continue the overall policy of uh, winding down the U.S. involvement in Vietnam, but as a way of facilitating that process, you know, giving us the the you know the breathing room that we need to conduct this withdrawal, we need to confront these North Vietnamese forces in Cambodia. But we should be quiet about it because it just would look strange for us to be bombing. Cambodia, for the public to see us bombing Cambodia at the same time that we're saying we're bringing the war to an end. So it's done, it's kept uh, a secret from the American public and from Congress. But then what happens is that in 1970, you have a coup occurring in Cambodia, bringing a new government into power. Now, the the previous government had been neutralist, the government of uh, Prince Sihanouk. And one of the reasons that this bombing campaign in Cambodia was kept secret was to avoid complications with this neutralist government. But now we have a new situation where you've got a very staunchly pro-US anti-communist government in Cambodia. And so the United States doesn't have the same need to avoid diplomatic complications with with Cambodia, it, it sort of is has it sees eye to eye with the Cambodian government on the threat posed by North Vietnam. That combined with the fact that the secret bombing has not uh, achieved the objective of wiping out the North Vietnamese sanctuaries persuades Nixon to take a more overt move in Cambodia. So in the April and May of 1970, U.S. troops openly invade Cambodia. 
and you know, it's announced that the that U.S. forces are moving into Cambodia to wipe out these sanctuaries <clears throat> to deal with the problem for once and for all. And because there's a new government in Cambodia that can formally welcome this, it's not a diplomatic uh, problem. Now, the, there's a longer term um, argument that people have made about the impact of the secret bombing and the U.S. military operations in Cambodia. And, uh, and you know the impact that those policies had on Cambodian history over the next several years. And that argument is that it so profoundly destabilizes Cambodian society. It you know drives so many people into uh, you know a, you know, desperate uh, straits. It creates refugees. It kills thousands of people. It fundamentally disrupts the fabric of village life in Cambodia, and that creates a an environment in which the Khmer Rouge, the communist insurgency, can gain public support in the country and also, um, you know, mount its insurgency and ultimately prevail. So, in 1975, you know, around the same time that the North Vietnamese prevail, the Khmer Rouge take power in Cambodia and then proceed to unleash a reign of terror against uh, its own people. Um, so the, the argument is that, well, sure, maybe the primary culprit in this catastrophe is the Khmer Rouge. Nonetheless, it's the actions of Nixon and Kissinger that set the stage for the Khmer Rouge to take power. I think there's a lot of force to that argument. I mean, it has, it's a, it makes a lot of sense to assign a good deal of the blame to Nixon and Kissinger. Sometimes I think it gets uh, a bit exaggerated and people act as if Nixon and Kissinger were the only uh, decision makers when it came to Cambodia's future and in, in some ways downplay the role that the Khmer Rouge itself played or the Cambodian um civil society itself played in bringing about this catastrophe. But nonetheless, I think it's people are on target when they criticize Nixon and Kissinger pretty severely for what they did in Cambodia. How creative and ingenious were Kissinger's ideas as compared to what other people were thinking at the time? You know, how much did his policies reflect, you know, the overarching values and ideas of the 70s and that time? I mean, that's an interesting question. I mean, in one way, Kissinger was right for the times in that by the 1970s, the consequences of following a highly ideological Cold War policy were increasingly recognized as being pretty negative. And that's where Kissinger comes in, where he's he's saying, yeah, we, you know, we should engage with all of these different countries around the world, all of these different governments, even those that we find repugnant in terms of their human rights records um, or their you know, lack of commitment to democracy, things like that. So in that sense, because there was a some appetite for a more you know, realistic approach to foreign policy that didn't get too hung up on these ideological binaries or these moralistic categories. And to the extent that that mindset was prevalent in the 70s, Kissinger was able to satisfy it. Some might argue, and this might be really oversimplifying it, but some might say that it's almost terribly 
ironic that Kissinger fled, you know, Nazi violence as a teenager. His, I believe his maternal grandparents were killed by the Nazis, only for him to be connected to so much bloodshed mm-hmm. on the international stage in Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and also Chile. How would Kissinger justify that paradox? And do you think that for him, the ends justify the means? So he, I think Kissinger has this suspicion of enthusiastic and vigorous social and political movements at home. You know, Nazism, you could see as this kind of fanatical expression of a particular kind of politics that flourished in Germany in the interwar period. And, you know, perhaps also the fact that, you know, Germany was not sufficiently constrained by outside neighbors at the start, that there was not a a powerful effort to resist Germany's aggressive moves, moves that ultimately sparked World War II, that there needed to be a much stronger kind of balance of power where prevailing forces could rein in Germany's aggressive impulses. These are all themes that Kissinger played on in describing his own commitment to foreign policy, that you know he's he's he wants to have the ability to check adversaries who might be aggressive or hostile to the United States. He also is suspicious of enthusiastic social movements that might develop in the domestic realm because those could lead to fanatical and dangerous forms of government. And finally, my last two questions for Dr. Yacoub were, how does he, a U.S. foreign policy expert, view Kissinger's legacy And how will people 100 years from now remember Henry Kissinger? Well, that's a really interesting question. Uh, But I would say that fundamentally people will remember him as a very skilled practitioner of foreign policy who succeeded in moving the United States out of a situation in which it was dangerously overexposed. And so... Kissinger basically helped to steer the country uh, towards a way of dealing with the world that was a bit less overtly domineering, you know, that it recognized the limits of its own power. So that, that's the broad thing that Kissinger did. But, you know, within the you know confines of that overall worldview, he did particular things that were quite reckless and dangerous. And therefore, he um, left a legacy that, you know, put the United States on the wrong side of history in a number of ways. That was Dr. Salim Yacoub, a professor of history and U.S. foreign relations at UCSB. You can hear a full conversation on SoundCloud, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi. 